to remember the kind of September when life was slow and oh so mellow. Try to remember the kind of September when grass was green and grain was yellow. Try to remember the kind of September when you were a tender and callow fellow. Try to remember, and if you remember, then follow. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 22nd, 2020. My name is James Marino and the broadcast today we have Peter Felish and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi, good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work for followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. You guys all uh, defrosting your turkeys? Uh, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> In a way, this is true. I went to our local uh, stop and shop out here in the land of Amity, and uh, it was like it was like Toys R Us on New Year- on Christmas Eve, not New Year's Eve. So, uh, I mean, the stop and shop in the suburbs. I mean, seven a.m. this morning, packed, wow. packed, full of people preparing for their holidays. We prepare for our holidays in other ways. I mean, I, I guess there's there's going to be this uh, virtual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade the thing yeah. on, on television. You know, our friend Giuseppe, who was our guest, Giuseppe yeah. a few weeks ago, he posted some um, uh, photos of him in Hamilton garb. Uh, he's participating in some way. I don't quite understand how they're they're doing it, but I guess they were sh- they were shooting something in front of they were shooting something in front of the Rogers. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, last what, week, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Last mm-hmm. week, and uh, our friend Rob Johnston uh, posted a picture on Facebook of the marquee of the Rogers, and it just it's uh, it just says 2021, and with the Hamilton logo, uh, and so they're looking forward to uh, coming back to Broadway. I mean, I'm glad to see that Hamilton's able to scrape by and make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So, but we're going to see things on television. I'm not sure which network is going to cover it, all networks are going to cover it, or uh, what's going to happen there. But um, but, uh, I I was, I heard that there were other shows that were long running shows that did something for it. And I, I can't retrieve the information in my brain right now of what it was because it's Sunday morning and I'm not thinking clearly, but um, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, at least virtually some of these performances and some of these familiar faces that we miss so dearly. Mm. Yes. So uh, coming up, Michael, we have uh, a performance of elegies that we have to let everybody know about because they should put it on the calendar. Yeah, this sounds really amazing. Tuesday, December 1st, uh, to benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS, um, a uh, performance, online performance of Elegies for Angels, Punks, and Raging Queens, which is a wonderful piece about, really about, originally about AIDS 
the AIDS epidemic and and people who died from AIDS uh, and people who lived through AIDS uh, with uh, book and lyrics by Bill Russell and music by Janet Hood. And um, there was a press release this week from Bono Brian Brown that says, I'll just read the first part of it, more Broadway television and film stars have been added to the celebrated series of songs and monologues, Elegies for Angels, Punks, and Ranging Queens, set to stream on World AIDS Day, Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. The virtual production featuring 51 performers will benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. Uh, Elegies for Angels, Punks, and Raging Queens honors the lives lost to AIDS through free verse monologues with a blues, jazz, and rock score. The newest additions to the stream include Paul Castry, Richard Chamberlain, Charity Angel Dawson, Fran Drescher, Jay Harrison Gee, or G, I'm not sure how he pronounces it, uh, Gideon Glick, Lisa Howard, James Monroe Eichelhart, Cherry Jones, Francis Jew, Vicki Lewis, Telly Leong, Stanley Wayne Mathis, Eric William Morris, Michael Noder Donato, Okirete Onadoan, Kristen Scott, Matthew Scott, Michael James Scott, Evan Todd, Marlon Torres, and Michael Xavier. There will also be special appearances by longtime Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS friends Danny Burstein, Judith Light, Billy Porter, and Michael Yuri. And all of these people join previously announced lineup of Brooks Ashmanskis, Laura Bell Bundy, Robin DeJesus, Stephanie Gibson, Lana Gordon, Alan H. Green, Lana Hall, Jane Howdy Shell, Famke Jansen, Jay Armstrong Johnson, Joaquina Kalukongo, Tari Kelly, Nathan Lane, Norm Lewis, Elise Allen Lewis, Andrea Macassette, Kevin McHale, Varla Jean Merman, Jesse Mueller, Cynthia Nixon, Roina Patel, Anthony Rapp, Krista Rodriguez, Seth Radetsky, J.K. Simmons, Robin Lord Taylor, Alicia Umphress, Anna Uzele, and Marisha Wallace. So talk about a powerhouse cast. Uh, several uh, recent guests on our podcast included in that list. And it just obviously sounds like it's going to be something special the piece itself is a really wonderful piece uh, for those of you who don't know it um wonderful songs uh, some very moving some very funny uh some both uh really great music and lyrics by that team and uh obviously it, it was written originally f around the aids uh tragedy the aids pandemic but now we have a new pandemic so i'm sure that um everyone thought it would be highly appropriate to revive it at this time it's uh we've been seeing the press releases for this and i mean really you, you don't get to see elegies very uh, very mm -hmm. often right uh and with this type of cast on a world's aids day and for broadway cares it's just like the alignment of everything it's so wonderful and uh and after you've read that list, uh, I think that just wraps it up for the today. I think. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we get on to trip, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Peter, yeah. you are uh, you are wanted to talk about a Molly Sweeney production in Texas. So, tell us about that. 
Yeah, um, you'll be pardoned if you don't know where Clute, Texas is. Clute is not spelled the way the Jane Fonda movie is spelled. It's C-L-U-T-E. Uh, it's about an hour, an hour and change from Houston driving southwest. But uh, Wesley Copeland uh, is the executive director of a theater there. And uh, it's called the Center for the Arts and Sciences. To be specific, the Brazosport Museum of Natural Science um, has a building there. And um, so it's the Brazosport Center for the Arts and Sciences that, um, that sponsors this community theater. And um, Wesley just did not want the pandemic to stand in the way of what he was doing. And, of course, there's been a lot of concern about actors uh, being on stage together that, you know, after all, actors have to speak forcefully. And as a result, little droplets uh, will come out of their mouths. And, um, gee, you know, actors being close to them could um, run the risk of infection. And nobody wants that to happen. So he decided to do Molly Sweeney by Brian Friel. And Molly Sweeney uh, is a three-character play. If you want to call it a play, you might not um, in the conventional sense because what it is is three people standing on stage a good deal of distance from each other, and what they're doing is simply delivering monologues. So he thought this was the ideal play for a situation that we're in right now. And um, he also held it outdoors, and he really made a big thing of it. Um, he got cor uh, corporate sponsorships for barbecue. Um, they, uh, of course, because it's an Irish play, uh, the barbecue place also offered corned beef. So that was quite nice. And it was out. So they made big circles uh, where six people could sit and uh, far apart from it. So groups of six. So if you're a family, you could be together. And um, it, they did it on a basketball court. Um, free tickets. You know, it was really great. And of course, they were worried about rain, but they didn't have to worry about that because it didn't happen. Um, um, he said, you know, people were just very anxious to get out of the house. That's what uh, so much of it was. And, you know, they would come to see anything at this point. And, you know, he, he, he realized that Molly Sweeney was not a laugh riot show. It is about a blind woman, for one thing. And um, that isn't much fun. But um, he said he actually got repeat audiences because uh, it was so well done. So um, he and he, he admitted, he said, you know, the tolerance for risk has really surprised me because um, people coming out. And he says, I, I just decided I was not going to let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. And what this pandemic has taught us is finding ways to persevere. We're, we're the little theater that could. We're not going to be interrupted. We this theater has been in existence for eighty years, and um, and they want to keep going. So I was really impressed by this, and um, my hat is off to uh, Wesley Copeland and uh, all the people down there in Bay City, Van Vleck, Texas, all these neighboring communities that came out to see the show. Wow, that's great. I will put the link to that in the show notes uh, at broadwayradio.com. Interesting is that the first thing we talked about, Elegies for uh, Angels, Punks, and Raging Queens, uh, the information is at uh, Broadway Cares, Equity Fights Aids, bcefa.org, and the Molly Sweeney is at bcfas.org, <laughs> so, <laughs> which is the uh, Center for the uh, Arts and Sciences, as, Peach, as Peter just mentioned. Uh, our listeners in the chat room here at uh, at broadwayradio.com are telling, filling us in some in, in additional information about the Macy's Day Parade, Thanksgiving Day Parade. Um, Rob Johnson said that in, they shot some of the stuff in front of uh, the Imperial Theater for Ain't Too Proud for the NBC special. Uh, and that section, the parade is just on NBC, but I don't think there's actually mm. a parade. 
It's a, it's a virtual parade. I don't or? think so. No, I, I read something about there will be some kind of an actual parade on 34th Street. A very oh, just limited. one block. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I heard today, you may have heard too, that they're not going to have Mardi Gras in New Orleans this year. Uh, That's canceled. Yeah. Wow. That's officially canceled. Yeah. All right. Uh, Alan Teasley also added that Jagged Little Pill, Mean Girls, and Ain't Too Proud are doing pre-recorded numbers for the parade. Uh, and parade participants, uh, Rob Johnson adds that the parade participants are Hamilton, Ain't Too Proud, Mean Girls, Jagged Little Pill. Alan Teasley adds that the Rockets, the Rockettes, the Rockets. <laughs> my mom was a rocket, <laughs> and I got that wrong. Yeah, <laughs> my mom was a rocket. The Rockettes evidently will be there as well. Uh, and Rob clarified by saying the, the parade is just a block long in front of Macy's. And Cheryl Hodges Selden added the same. So thank you all for that information. James, uh, I've often heard that um, being a rocket is really hard because the stage of Radio City is um, made of some sort of substance that's really tough on dancers. Did your mother ever complain about this? No. Okay. No, my, my mom never complained about really anything. Uh, I love her. Yeah. No, well, that's uh, the difference between yours and mine. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's interesting because... Uh, uh, by Rockette standards, my mom was short. My mom was, you know, five, 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 six, or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody was like, "Wow, your mom was." But yeah, she was. Uh, and she said that she, you know, she was just one of the girls uh, mm-hmm. there, and she did that for uh, w- just one year, and then mm-hmm. she got married and had kids, and mm-hmm. uh, she actually started a dance studio, and. Uh, I got none of those dance jeans. None, oh. none of them. So, oh. so <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it, it's uh, interesting. We actually went backstage at Radio City Musical just once uh, mm-hmm. to see her name on the wall. Ah. Uh, and uh, it, it's such a thing. And there was so much history about Radio City. You know, something about the... The hydraulics on the stage for Radio Mm -hmm. City were things that were considered uh, national security secrets. And they, during the war, the World War II, they they put uh, National Guard there to protect Radio City Music Hall because evidently the 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 way in which you know we take it for granted now that the the stage goes up and down and gets lifted and lowered and things like right. that is the same i think i read somewhere that it was the same technology that the aircraft carriers use on the <laughs> ships to uh. lift up aircrafts and that was considered you know some sort of strategic advantage for the american forces <laughs> back back then and there i see Amazing. yeah wow. i mean it's just so Interesting. And so there, interesting. there again, there's another place that almost went bye-bye, I think. Indeed. Um, in the, uh, what, what right. the 70s, I guess, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, the, the Dolans are trying to kill it no matter what. So. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, the last time I was in there was for the Damnness thing. Uh, it was for a press preview, and only two people showed up. Uh, I showed up and someone else did. And it was for something involving the Statue of Liberty. Do you know about this? They had this enormous... Um, just um, torso of the Statue of Liberty on stage that moved a little. 
Anyway, they got rid of us really fast because they knew that uh, things weren't working out and it never opened. I don't know. I don't remember what it was called or anything like that, but really virtually the entire stage was filled with the torso of the Statue of Liberty. Um, And uh, uh, it didn't make me say that's entertainment, but I mean, what can I tell you? I don't know what it was supposed to be. Damn this thing. If any of our listeners know, let me know. Oh, there was. Yeah, you're talking about that. Are you talking about that big show that was supposed to open and, and then didn't? And wasn't it, it didn't either, open? I it know was that. either. Was it Scott Rudin or Weinstein? Was it really? Yeah. One of really? the major, major people. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah. Well, they had the they were going to do an Easter show or, or a spring show or something like that. That sort of uh, I believe they did it for one year or but it sort of petered out, uh, and then Radio City went back to being just a rental venue uh, for you know large concerts uh, by performing artists, and not really so much a self-produced internal Radio City show, except for the uh, Christmas show, which you know I guess uh, you know we'll have to see how that returns in future years. It's mm-hmm. crazy, mm-hmm. it's crazy. But the you know the. Uh, more announcements this week that we have three viable uh, uh, COVID um, mm-hmm. vaccines, vaccines and yeah. and one viable COVID treatment, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, the testing prices of COVID are coming down. So it, it may make theater and performing arts and other uh, dance and orchestra performances. I mean, the New York Phil and the New York Pops, they're just... Uh, they, all these arts organizations uh, are yes. waiting with bated breath for yes. something to be uh, some sort of uh, thing when you are able to safely get people back into the theater and everybody's waiting for that. I mean, my uh, so many of our friends, well, I'm sure all of us that are listening here, we have friends that are uh, have just been unable to work since March of uh, 2020 mm-hmm. and and their unemployment benefits are running out uh, coming up in uh, the day after Christmas I think the day mm-hmm. that the initial stimulus uh, benefits mm-hmm. run out mm-hmm. so that's all crazy yeah so the topic for this week that uh, Peter had suggested was our favorite mo- moments with theater celebrities so Peter why don't you start us off with that well, uh, it occurred to me that some of my favorite experiences are ones I may have told in the past. Uh, and so if indeed you heard a podcast where I've told this story, <laughs> please forgive. But, uh, but um, who immediately comes to mind is Zoe Caldwell, uh, who was so magnificent in master class. And uh, I went to interview her and I said, your performance in master class is the second greatest performance I've ever seen by an actress. The best was you in the prime of Miss Jean Brody. I don't mean that you've lost a step. Um, it's just that I didn't know who you were then when you did the prime of Miss Jean Brody, even though she'd already won a Tony for um, two one act, um, a few one act plays by Tennessee Williams, uh, which closed very quickly uh, on Broadway a few years earlier. But um, But she said... You saw the prime of Miss Jean Brody. You must have been very young. And I thought about it and I said, 
Um, no, actually, I was 21 already. And she said, 21 is very young to be going to the theater. <laughs> <laughs> she was so wonderful. And I'll tell you, uh, every time I would run into her, she said, ah, Mr. Felicia. Okay, so she pronounced it wrong, but at least the, she knew the name. And yeah. um, that, that was good enough for me. And, um, and she was so great, as I mentioned rather recently, when she gave out a Theater World Award uh, to the, the cast of The Motherfucker with the Hat, you know, and I mean, <laughs> <laughs> hearing that elegant voice and she plowed right through it. I mean, it was as if she was saying Christmas. Uh, so, so the motherfucker with the hat, you know, so, so that's certainly one of my all time favorites. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, um, the thing about Zoe Caldwell, I mean, her IBDB page, the devil's slapstick, the devil's in 1965 slapstick tragedy, the prime of Miss Jean Brody, as Peter That's mentioned, one. the creation of the world and other business, death of dance, an almost perfect person, Medea, Lillian, Macbeth, Park Your Car in Harvard Yard, Masterclass, the play, what I wrote. I mean... Yeah, and some of those she directed, which is really interesting as well. But if you look at her Tony accomplishments, mm. that's where it really gets interesting. It was The Lady Never Lost. Yeah. So Tony Award, uh, Best Featured Actress in a Play, 1966, Slapstick. Mm -hmm. 1968, Best Actress in a Play, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Uh, 1982, Best Actress in a Play, Medea. And uh, 1996, Best Actress in a Play, Masterclass. Four for four. Uh, four for four. And uh, three for three in the Drama Desk Awards. Mm -hmm. Outstanding Performance in uh, Colette. Uh, uh Outstanding Actress in a Play for Medea and Outstanding Actress in a Play for Masterclass and a Theater World Award 1966, Spotted Young by uh, Mr. John. So, mm. uh, oh, just, just incredible. And um, also, I'm sorry to say I missed her in the creation of the world and other business. Ironically enough, it tried out in Boston where I did see it, but she took over a role. And so I didn't get to see her uh, do it. Uh, by the time they left Boston, she was then starting to uh, get into the part. So I'm sorry I missed her in that. I like that play a lot. Um, I have to say um, it uh, it dealt with matters of uh, God and the devil and um, how the devil, played wonderfully by Hal Holbrook, said that um, you need me. You need me, God. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's got to be a yin and a yang. And uh, mm. so, uh, so I kind of like creation of the world, or at least I did back in the early 70s. Uh, was, you know, it's the problem with Donald Trump, he was continuing to run against Hillary Clinton. You know, he needed a foil to run against, you know, and oh, he well. co couldn't pull it off, you know. <laughs> uh, Michael, what's your favorite celebrity? <laughs> yes, let's, let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> he who shall not be named has just mm -hmm. been named. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, actually, I have a so Caldwell story I may really? have told, and it's not near, nowhere near as amusing as Peter's, but I used to work at uh, this place called the Century Club, the Century Association, which is an old, old, old club, uh, private club. Uh, used to be, it was a men's club for about 150 years. <laughs> until they um, were basically forced to let women in. Uh, and right around the time when I started working for them in the 90s at some point. And it wasn't primarily a, a theater club by any stretch of the imagination, but they did have some theater people. And one day, um, Zoe Caldwell and her husband 
the great producer Robert Whitehead mm-hmm. were there. I don't remember why. I think they had an event coming up. And uh, as I say, it wasn't primarily a theater club, so she didn't necessarily expect uh, to be recognized or anyone to make a, a big deal over her. But of course, <laughs> they came in, and at one point, I went over to them, and I and I, I started telling them both how much I admired them, and they were they seemed to be really delighted because they they just didn't expect it. And then I started talking about. Um, her production of Medea uh, that I had seen on Broadway. And she was like, oh, yes, oh, yes. <laughs> and I said, um, oh, I said, that was so wonderful to see you on stage with Judith Anderson. Oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes. <laughs> and I said, and that was televised, wasn't it? She oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, later uh, discovered that I think it's actually you might find it on YouTube and it's definitely worth looking for. If you if you uh, take the time, but it was really great to be with. It's it's fun to be with people like that in a very informal setting, uh, you know, just to, because they tend to have their guard down. If if they have a guard that they usually put up, it's usually not up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also uh, for me, it was interesting to, to work at the Century Association for those seven years because I met people in other spheres other than show business, whom I would never, ever have met, such as Walter Cronkite. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had many conversations with him. And um, the, the most interesting story I could think of uh, regarding that was that John Lindsay, uh, the former mayor of New York, was a member. And he was, you know, pretty elderly at the time. And he was very nice, and he would come in uh, now and then. And then I read that he... Um, had been at <laughs> he had been the at the Algonquin Hotel for some reason, and apparently they were going through a bad patch there where that place was not what it had been before, and he uh, wanted to have something to eat, and they had very little to offer him, so they offered him an omelet. <laughs> and that was and it was just about all that they had, and so he had the omelet, but unfortunately he had um he had a heart condition. He had heart problems. And then he, and then he actually wound up having like a minor heart attack like the next day. And wow. this, this actually made the press. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So I, I really did get to meet. Oh, um, Klaus von Bülow. Was mm, member, was that's so funny. Uh, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I, um, I once was editor of a magazine called The Best Report, which was about the best of everything. And so as a result, we had a social register there um, for all these high-toned people. And Klaus von Bülow was on the, um, on the list. Uh, by the way, if people don't know who Klaus von Bülow was, he was accused of um, killing his wife. Um, there was a made-for-TV movie. Um, was yes. it made, I think it was made-for-TV. Jeremy Irons played Oh, no, no, not, not made-for-TV. It wasn't? It was a real movie? I, I think so, yeah. Okay, I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he, he was accused of killing his wife and went on trial, and there was a, a big stink about it at the time. But anyway, there was his name in the, and number in the phone book, so I just 
thought I'd call. And um, I left a message uh, with my name and number, and he called back. And I was amazed. And I thought, maybe Klaus is really lonely. Maybe I should take him for a walk in Central Park, you know, buy him a hot dog, buy him a balloon, you know. I mean, he might. So it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned him. I haven't thought about him uh, since that happened. But, um, but you know, in terms of, um, I, I just mentioned the devil um, in um, a creation of the world and played by Hal Holbrook. And I, I had an interesting experience with him too. And that happened um, when he was doing another version of Mark Twain Tonight. And uh, the publicist called me and said, you have 10 minutes with him. 10 minutes. That's it. Um, I said, okay. All right. So it's going to be from 1110 to 1120. I said, fine. So anyway, there we are, and at the nine-and-a-half-minute mark, after we've been talking to Mark Twain, I said to him, are you sorry you didn't do 110 in the shade? And there was this long pause <laughs> before he said, yes, I was. And for the next 10 minutes, the person who was supposed to interview him didn't because he was talking to me all about his experience with that. He had been signed for the lead, Starbuck, mm. in 110 in the shade. David Merrick had signed him, signed, sealed, delivered, all set. So um, anyway, then what had happened was um, Alan J. Lerner and Richard Rogers were writing a musical called I Picked a Daisy. Rogers dropped out. Lerner went on to write it as On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. But it was called I Picked a Daisy. And the psychiatrist, who would later be played by Louis Jordan and then John Cullum, was to be played by Robert Horton, who was a big TV star from a, a very successful series called Wagon Train, which was number one um, many of the years it was on. And um, the fact that um, David Merrick hated Richard Rogers because Richard Rogers hated him and wouldn't give, um, <laughs> wouldn't allow uh, him to have 51% of Fanny. David Merrick had the rights to Fanny and he wanted Rogers and Hammerstein to write it. And they said, we will, but we've got to control it because after all, we're Rogers and Hammerstein and we're producers now. And he said, no, I want to produce it myself. Well, then we're not doing it. So they were enemies from that point on. And the thing was that um, David Merrick thought it'd be a great thing if he could take uh, Richard Rogers' leading man, Robert Horton, and put him in 110 in the shade. So he said to Hal Holbrook, um, <laughs> you can be in 110 in the shade, but notice that your contract simply says you're going to be in 110 in the shade. It doesn't say you're mm -hmm. playing Starbuck in 110 in the shade. It, it just says you're going to be in it. And so uh, we have a really good ensemble and you'll really enjoy being with them. And Hal Holbrook was furious. Well, he told me that since then, um, that was the thing that got um, equity to change contracts that actually say you will be playing the role of blah, 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 uh, whatever it is. That before that, it was simply you're going to be in the show. That's and, incredible. Yeah, yeah. So um, so that was an interesting story with Hal Holbrook, and I apologize to the person who was supposed to speak to him next. Now, I, I, forgive my ignorance, but what other singing uh, has he done in his career? Um... Uh, uh, he was an apple tree. Hal Holbrook, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, okay. he was an apple tree. He took over for Alan Alder, I believe. Maybe Larry Blood. Oh, know. okay. I'm not sure that he, I. Knew he, that. He, he definitely was in it for a while. Yeah, um, I mean, he's certainly not known primarily as a singing actor. No, I don't have any Hal Holbrook albums in my collection. No, <laughs> I, 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 uh, point, I have uh, Hal Holbrook as Don Quixote in Man of La Mancha. See, oh, I have really? this mental block against Man of La Mancha. I wow. don't. <laughs> 1968, he replaced. I never heard of that. He replaced on IBDB, uh, oh, Apple Tree. Yeah, what else? Apple Tree. Apple Tree and Man of La Mancha. That's as, it. Insofar as IBDB goes. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Don wow. Quixote. Wow. Yeah. Mm. I guess he. Uh, it wasn't an impossible dream.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess not. I guess not. <laughs> so, uh, so that is really that's a jewel that yeah. uh, the whole the whole equity contract thing yeah, happened yeah. there. That's yeah. really interesting. Mm-hmm. So if that's my, what really happened. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> well, who does it? Does it matter if it actually happened? <laughs> well, I mean, it's still a great story. <laughs> I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Michael is going to go. No, mean? but also, yeah, that definitely sounds like Merrick, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think he killed Buckwheat? Oh, yeah, sure. That's all he ever talked about. <laughs> have I told so, my story with David Merrick? I'll let Michael go first. Um, I may have, and it's it's not a great story in the sense of it doesn't make me look good, but I'll tell it uh, after Michael tells his. Well, uh, another quick uh, Century Club story is that, uh, as, as I said, uh, Klaus von Bülow was a member, but also Henry Kissinger. Mm. And I'll never forget this. Uh, he was... Uh, he came up to my desk one day. He had some business to do. I was the executive secretary there. I, I don't remember what it was. And I noticed like one of the other members waiting outside like the door at a distance. <laughs> uh, and it was like some major, major New York figure. Uh, let, let me put it that way. And, uh, and then finally Kissinger left and the other fellow came in and, and, um, and he said, uh, well, I was waiting outside because I didn't want to be in the same room with that person. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, wow, you know, and, you know, to be because to be like around people for me to be around people like Walter Cronkite and Henry mm. Kissinger, mm. because that's not my world is like really in mm. a way, in a way, even more thrilling <laughs> than mm. to be uh, uh, around the theater people. But on that note, um, uh, I had a lovely experience when I interviewed Julie Andrews in 1998, I think, for In Theater Magazine. It was an in-person interview at uh, the, uh, we did it in combination with a photo shoot at Robert Milazzo, uh, it was the photographer, and he had a place down in uh, Soho, I think it was. And it was all, you know, it was all very nicely set up and very formal, and I, and uh, Miss Andrews was in her, you know, her public persona mode, and she looked amazing. And uh, and I, but while we were, they were setting up for the one of the shots, I I said I was really so struck by how great she looked, and I said, "You look so terrific." I said, "Have you ever had a weight problem?" Uh, and she said, "I do." She said, uh, she, I, I, she, "I have. I still do." She said, "I can't eat bread." And I said, oh, <laughs> well, that's, mm. um, and then uh, when we got into the interview itself, again, she, uh, you know, so many people have interviewed her and she has uh, sort of, I don't want to say pattern responses, but things that, uh, that ways that she knows how to respond to things. And, and there's always like a, a professional, somewhat, somewhat of a professional distance, uh, uh, I mean, very, very nice and very, very, very professional, but, but not, uh, not very informal and, and, uh, tending not to say anything negative. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, at the end of the interview, after I turned off the recorder, I mentioned to her, um, in passing that, uh, of course she was, uh, she and her daughter were involved very much at the Bay Street Theater. In uh, mm-hmm. in Sac Harbor, and they had just had an incident where they were going to do a play called Elsa Edgar, uh, with Elaine Stritch, uh, a one-person show in which apparently in Act One, uh, 
Miss Stritch was going to play Elsa uh, Maxwell, and in 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 Act Two she was going to play uh, J Edgar Hoover, uh, and uh, and so Elaine Stritch was going to do it, and she was going to do it, and then suddenly she wasn't doing it, and the author, uh, who was a male, <laughs> wound up doing playing the roles. Uh, and this had happened not long before that. So I, uh, and nobody knew exactly what happened, but uh, I guess many people assume maybe that it was just a memory issue, uh, you know, for Elaine Stritch at that age to do a, a, a full length mm-hmm. one person show might've been a, a bit much. And it obviously was different than her, her Broadway liberty, show. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, so I said, in, just in passing, after I turned off the recorder, I said, um, I said, oh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm so sorry, uh, you know, about what happened with Elsa Edgar. And Miss Andrews made a face, uh, as, as Gerard Alessandrini said in another context, as if uh, somebody had squirted a lemon in her face. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, oh, I said, and she said, um, and she said, we won't talk about that. She said, I love Elaine. But we won't talk about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said that's fine. I understand. <laughs> it reminds me of, of Debbie Reynolds, who uh, when I um, it was just a phone interview, but she was so amazingly frank. Um, oh and, yeah, uh, that I was so surprised uh, that I even dared to ask about Eddie Fisher, um, uh, which was the big scandal in the fifties when Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds were married, but he left her for Elizabeth Taylor, um, and. Uh, but I wish that he could be a man and stand up to his responsibility. I was amazed how frank she was, <laughs> astonished. Uh, Mary Rogers was majorly frank to me, too, about her father, Richard Rogers, mm. and made it very clear to me that living in that house was not sitting around a piano with everybody jolly singing Doa Deer, um, that uh, mm. indeed he was a tough guy. And, and yeah. um, when, when he was... Um, inebriated which happened quite a bit um he was not a happy drunk um so so that was a problem as well so okay so we all know how a vpn protects your privacy and security online right but i didn't know this until recently it's taken my tv watching game to the next level you can use a vpn to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries last week i used expressvpn to binge doctor who on uk netflix It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, changed my location to the UK, refreshed Netflix, and that's it. See, ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think that you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries, so just think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's just not Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I use ExpressVPN to watch shows is that it's ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream HD with no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all of your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more, so you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support our show 
Watch what you want and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash broadwayradio. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash broadwayradio. And thanks to ExpressVPN for continuing to support Broadway Radio. Charles Nelson Riley is one that I'll never forget, and I bring <laughs> him up a lot because Charles Nelson Riley, if you know who I mean, he was the original um, uh, Bud Frump in How to Succeed. He was the original Cornelius Hackle in Hello, Dolly. But many people know him from his appearance on uh, game shows on TV, and he was always a silly, funny guy, and uh, that was his persona. And he was directing a play with Julie Harris out in uh, Longmorth, and I said to him, do you think it'll come in? And... Um, and the look on that silly man's face was not silly anymore. He was so deadly serious. It was an expression I'd never seen from him after mm-hmm. watching him for decades when he got so serious when he said, it's a miracle that anything ever happens in the theater. And mm-hmm. uh, those are words to live by. Um, you know, It's really true that, um, that so many things are able to come together and even get produced, let alone be successful. It really is a miracle. But uh, the way he said it and the expression on his face, I can still see to this day. And this happened at least 30 years ago. I wanted to uh, throw some comments in and some questions. Uh, first, the comment is that uh, Michael forwarded on to us a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Our dear friend Julie Andrews uh, sent us a video on how to listen to a podcast. Oh, my God. I, I, Isn't that I, wonderful? I watched it again last night. It is so delightful. It, just, the way, just the way that she says, podcast <laughs> podcast i'm going to uh put the uh link to this youtube video in our show notes because it's so wonderful it's only two minutes long yes. uh and it should be required listening to anybody that uh if you say hey you know uh you should listen to the broadway radio podcast and people say what's a podcast sure. and you can send them this two minute sure. link from julie andrews and if they don't listen to it then they're not interested in broadway radio anyway mm-hmm. because it's julie andrews mm-hmm. it's just required Mm-hmm. My my question for you is: um, Has there been any uh, Michael Century Club, uh, uh, Klaus von Bülow, Henry Kissinger, Walter mm. Cronkite? Uh, obviously, Walter Cronkite's got a Broadway pedigree. Um, <laughs> pedigree as well. Pedigree, yes. excuse me. Oh, uh, yes, pedi- how pedigree. To, how to succeed, right? Uh, how to His succeed? Yeah. How to succeed? Yeah. Uh, um. So, uh, has uh, Klaus von Bülow or Henry Kissinger uh, been mentioned in Broadway shows? Uh, is this a trivia question, Peter? Henry Kissinger, definitely. Um, and he was, um, I think it was part of um, Nixon Nixon. Was that the name of the show? It was done at the West Side Arts. Uh, oh, yeah. I, th- I think he was part of that. I've definitely seen an actor uh, pretend to be Henry Kissinger on stage. I can even see him. That's why I think it's the West Side. Um, so, um, and uh, he was sort of alluded to in um, a play called Sheep on the Runway by Ock Buckwald, uh, a uh, political commentator uh, back hmm, in the 70s yeah. so um which was uh, a very funny um play and uh, barnard hughes was in it and he played a uh, a man um a military guy who kept on making a mistake of the name of the country that uh, he was <laughs> talking about it was like nanamuki and he would say nanamora you know that type of thing and when i talked to him about it he had no memory of it whatsoever and it was only let me think. Uh, ooh, it was it was only six years later that uh, I talked to him about it. But it is amazing how many uh, people forget things um, at, that certainly keep in in our memory, and uh, that really always surprises me. But uh, but I have to say that um, in terms of 
people who have really impressed me with their memory. Um, I certainly think that, uh, as I, Karen, I've said this recently, Karen Morrow was certainly had a wonderful memory. Harold Gould mm-hmm. had a wonderful memory. I thought he was uh, terrific as well. And Larry Gelbart, who was really uh, quite wonderful. Um, I also remember him telling me that um, whenever he dealt with uh, Zero Mostel or Kate Mostel's wife, or with Jack Guilford and Madeline, uh, his wife, that they actually made an idiom of one of the lines in um, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. That is, uh, the news from Crete is very bad. Uh, and in the play, that has to do with... Um, it has to do with the fact that this uh, oh. is lying, um, that um, he claimed that there's a plague in Crete. And that's why um, Marcus Lycus should not um, let uh, Philia out of the, um, the brothel um, and keep her away from everybody, that type of thing. And he said that really became an idiom whenever something bad happened. And indeed, when uh, Jack Guilford died and Madeline called Larry, she started by saying the news from Crete is very bad. Um, yeah. So, um, so I, I certainly remember that, but yeah, he had a great memory and, um, and you know, Rachel York will uh, endeared herself to me tremendously because about halfway during the interview, she said, I'm not giving you enough. I'm not interesting enough. I've got to come up with interesting stories. I know you need them. And I, she was the only person who's ever indicated to me, I understand the problems of a journalist. And I thought that was really quite great, you know, that she really had that uh, empathy or at least sympathy for, um, for a guy who was trying to do his job. So I, I, I like that quite a bit. <laughs> So uh, Tony Janicki reminds us that it was Frost Nixon. Uh, was it? Oh. Frost Nixon was the play. Uh, it makes and- more sense. I'm starting to think Nixon, Nixon, if that was the title, um, was um, was even a one-person show. But I have this visual memory. But, of course, as Robert Goulet taught us in The Happy Time, the memory plays tricks. <laughs> I have a tangential story about David Frost, who, who is the uh, first part of the Frost Nixon thing. Uh, my first job on Wall Street, uh, I was an assistant to a, a very big trader, and uh, one of the trader's clients was David Frost. Hmm. And uh, we were doing a big transaction for David uh and uh, all the proper paperwork hadn't been signed, and I kept on going back and forth with his uh, assistant in in London uh, by FedEx and by phone. And finally, we were down to brass tacks, and it had to be done. And uh, I called London. I said, Trish, is James Marino in New York? Uh, the paperwork's still not correct. Uh, I need to uh, have David sign this paperwork right away. And she says, but... James, uh, David is unavailable. I said, well, uh, we, we have to get this done. This is going to cost him a lot of money. And she said, he's in St. Martin. Uh, and so I said, okay. And I um, hung up the phone. And I looked at my boss and I said, uh, David's not in London. He's in St. Martin. And my boss said, go to Kennedy, get on a plane and go no to St. Martin. <laughs> <laughs> and no, so <laughs> I... I jumped out of my uh, my desk and grabbed uh, grabbed my passport and head to Kennedy Airport and flew to St. Martin to get David Frost to sign this paperwork on the beach in St. Martin. 
and as I uh, was finishing having him sign the paperwork, I'm still in a suit uh, standing on the beach in 90-degree uh-huh. weather in St. Martin. He, he signs the paperwork, and he looks at me and he says, how old are you? And I said, uh, I said I'm, I'm 19 years old. And he said, you're 19 years old, and you have millions of dollars of money. Uh. And I said, well, my boss does. I don't you know, really. He says, he says, America is quite a country. <laughs> That's the last thing I ever said to David Frost. Oh, my God. That is great. Have you been back to St. Martin? I have. What a beautiful, beautiful place. You know, they've been devastated by the, by the hurricanes mm. in the last couple of years. Uh, mm. But um, just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, country that is claimed by Two, two different, uh, you know, St. Martin's got a Dutch side and it's got a French side. Uh, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's really interesting the, the way that the uh, European uh, powers have colonized so many of the, the beautiful islands in, mm. in the Caribbean and uh, just south of that. Uh, but it, it's it's really it's really wonderful. I, I I don't think that I know of any theater that happens in St. Martin, but we certainly have to have the uh, Broadway Radio Retreat in St. Martin. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a retreat right now, but that's another story. Um, Dame Edna Everidge. Um, ah. Yes. Um, the, go- the the rule is when you talk to Dame Edna, she is Dame Edna. She is oh, not right. Barry Humphrey. Yeah. Uh-huh. She is not Barry Humphreys, who um, played The Undertaker and Oliver in the original production of Oliver back in 1960 in, uh, in England. So, um, so as a result, I, I am told that if indeed you say, well, Barry, um, she gets up and walks away, and that's the end of it. Ironically mm-hmm. enough, the, the day I interviewed her, she came in wearing a dress that made her look like the Statue of Liberty. I'm amazed how much the Statue of Liberty is coming up today. But anyway, um, so... <laughs> Um, there I am interviewing. I said, Dame Edna, have you ever thought of playing the great roles in musical theater? Mame, Dolly, The Undertaker and Oliver. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, in a way, I'm sorry I did it because she was, after I said Mame, Dolly, she started answering. But when I said uh, The Undertaker <laughs> and Oliver, there was a sudden stony silence <laughs> after which she said, the Undertaker and Oliver is not a great role. <laughs> uh, IBDB uh, lists as Barry Humphreys will not list as Dame Edna. Mm-hmm. Very uh-huh. interesting. Very interesting. Oh. Very interesting. Oh. So, Dame would not be happy about that. I'll tell not, you right now. Not happy about no. that. No. You know, there's some people you remember just for being nice, even though um, I can't think of a, a, a specific story about them. Um, you know, Harold Gould was very nice, astonishingly nice to me. And uh, Jack Klugman, extraordinarily nice uh-huh. as well. Yeah. Very nice. Um, John Mahoney, very nice. Tony Joe Randall. Stein. Tony Randall, very interesting. I was thinking about Tony, Tony, <laughs> about Tony Randall because uh, when I went uh, to meet Tony Randall, he had a puzzled, quizzical expression on his face. That's what I first saw when I walked in. And he said, 
why do you mispronounce your last name? It's Venegia. <laughs> and, you know, putting his little hand together, you know, the fingers together with that Italian gesture, moving it back and forth very quickly. And that's so Tony Randall, you know, <laughs> immediately perfect. correcting. I mean, not even hello, you know, <laughs> and, and pretending to be confused, you know, that type of thing, you know, so. Uh, what happened with the National Actors Theater? Did it just peter know, out or did it, it, it did it transfer to something else? Or? James, this is the second time today use the expression petered out and I don't oh. like it. But anyway, um, <laughs> now, you know, it's, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was just not appreciated. Really. This guy really tried to do something wonderful. And uh, it seemed like people had a chip on the shoulder from the first start of it. And I don't understand why he was a guy who was going to try to start a national theater and maybe things weren't successful at the beginning, but you have to walk before you can run. And the idea of uh, having great classics being done on, uh, on a Broadway stage seems a good idea to me and yeah. uh, i was sorry that uh, it really it, it he never seemed to get a break with that as far as i'm concerned and um for a guy who really put up so much time and energy and money um involved in it it was really a shame that it wasn't appreciated i agree with all of that it did uh, turn out to be a launching pad for uh, danny burstein mm-hmm. that's oh, right though yeah. that that's, that's right. something really yeah. good that came out of it yeah 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 hmm. indeed I have to uh, go ahead to drive by uh, <laughs> celebrity experiences. I think I may have told them both, but but they're kind of cute. I was walking into a show with a friend. I don't remember what it was, and um, I noticed that Des Mackinoff was walking in like right next to me with whoever date he was with, and so I was walking in with my friend, and uh, and my friend said, "You know what? I would really, really love to see so much." is Jersey Boys. <laughs> and, uh, and I turned to him and I said, well, why don't you speak to this gentleman next to you and maybe he can hook you up. <laughs> and, and Des just started to laugh. And, uh-huh. and then we just I think we just said, hi, how are you? And, you know. uh, but then uh, on, on the polar opposite end of the scale, I, I know I've told this story, even though it embarrasses me. Uh, I went to see a Horton Foot play called The Young Man from Atlanta, mm-hmm. which I really, really, really did not like. And for what it's worth, it had a very short run, so I guess I wasn't alone. Um, but I remember uh, at intermission, the lights went up and I was talking to my friend. We were still in our seats on the aisle. And I wasn't speaking loudly, but I said something like, oh gosh, I really did not like that. I said, can you please explain to me how Horton Foot could write something like that. And he said, well, why don't you ask him? He's walking up the aisle right next to you. <laughs> but fortunately, I don't think he heard me. So I dodged that bullet. <laughs> wow. Isn't that something? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, I was talking to a, um, a theater critic um, in, uh, on Broadway in line at a hot dog cart. Uh, in front of uh, the marquee, I think it was, and uh, it was during the run of Damn Yankees, the revival, and he was talking about uh, how much he didn't uh, appreciate um, the changes. <laughs> one of the actors in, oh. uh, ah. in uh, Damn Yankees, and the actor was standing in back of us online, and <laughs> and. Uh, and the actor handled it very, very graciously. Uh, 
and uh, he he said, uh, you know, uh, I'll have my hot dog with mustard and sauerkraut. <laughs> he was like, he just rose above it, and he was like, everybody's got their own thing, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> but though, you know, New York, you can run across anybody yes. in New York and at the theater. Yes, yes. somebody was um, Lisa Gold is uh, a theatrical publicist uh and uh and she handles a lot of um a lot of individuals she doesn't handle shows she handles uh, publicity for individuals and she was talking about uh how much that broadway needs a national figure to advocate for broadway and as an industry um you know during the pandemic and for uh for funds from the government and you know it seems like the german government did you hear what the german government is giving the german government is giving artists who make their living uh 7000 uh dollars a month wow. to during this uh thing and we can't get a dollar out of our government wow. so lisa was advocating for this and we were uh having a back and forth discussion about who could be this national figure Lynn and I, miranda well she uh, and people talked about lynn uh but she's like bigger bigger it's got to be somebody really hmm. large larger than that and i was like hillary clinton you know, she goes to so much Broadway. Mm-hmm. She has got the, the international stature and mm-hmm. uh, certainly could do that. But, uh, I mean, have you guys ever attended a performance where Hillary's been in the audience? No. No, but another ch- uh, good choice would be Michelle Obama, right? Sure. A lot of – I think that, that the Obamas did a lot of theater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I certainly uh, played a key role in the um, – in the development of uh, Hamilton, mm-hmm. right? So, oh, absolutely, uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, really, uh, really interesting ab- about who you can run into at the theater, yes. whether it be Des McEnough, Horton Foote, uh, the Obamas, <laughs> or the Clintons. Uh, yes. But um, you know who goes to the theater a lot? Who? Bruce Valanchet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so oh, Michael, you, you had a you had a story you. about Bruce. <laughs> thank you for my opening. I didn't even recognize it. Thank you. Yeah, Bruce posted on uh, Facebook. I, I don't know what it was in response to, but we we've discussed this before. But he explained in more detail something that uh, something really interesting trivia that people have noticed. The original cast, original Broadway cast of West Side Story, had in it a a performer named elizabeth taylor hmm. and uh and and some people i have to say have been foolish enough to actually think that that mm-hmm. was the real yeah. one you know against all reality mm-hmm. uh but most of us uh realized that it must have been someone with the same name and and wondered exactly how that happened well what bruce wrote on facebook the other day was um Elizabeth Taylor and Elizabeth Taylor. One is a legend. The other is two. Her name is Frances Davis, and she was married to Miles Davis for a time. Hmm. She couldn't use that name because someone in equity had it already. So she went through the roster and discovered the other Elizabeth wasn't a member. So she took that name, and Elizabeth Taylor was a shark girl in the original cast of West Side Story. (laughs) When the other Elizabeth, the famous one, had to join Equity, she had to call Frances and ask her if she would take an honorable withdrawal. Frances graciously did so. Hmm. 
So I guess that wasn't <laughs> until the Little Foxes, right? Uh, Private Lives was that before then? I don't know. Uh, no, Little Foxes was first. Was it? Okay. Yeah, I remember that because I missed it, and then I went to see Private Lives, which was not as happy an experience. But it's, I'm still glad I saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you know who else uh, famous celebrity couldn't use their own name on Broadway? Vanessa Williams. Oh, Vanessa. That's right. Yeah, that's right. She had to add the L. L, yeah, yeah. And then I think she's been able to take it away since then because... I see. uh, uh, Yeah, I'm not sure. There was another person. Who are you thinking of, James? Uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis was not able to use his his real name. He had to choose Bruce Willis. You know what his original name is? What? Walter Willison. No. Yes. (laughs) You're no. kidding. Yes? No. Yes. <laughs> the that irony is... is that Walter Willison's first name is really Arthur. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> there wow. you go. David Merrick. Okay. It's 1980. I'm not reviewing. I have to pay for my tickets, <laughs> and I don't have much money. And 42nd Street is coming down the pike. And I do read in the paper that David Merrick's has decided the first performance in New York of um, 42nd Street will be a benefit for the Democrats. Democrats were having the convention. It was 1980. And they were going to have this big meal at Lincoln Center. They were all going to walk down Broadway to the Winter Garden and see 42nd Street. And I thought, oh, oh, I bet if I go up there to Lincoln Center, somebody will throw away an invitation and I'll be able to see 42nd Street. Oh, wow. So I walked up there, and the place was immaculate. And then I thought, you know, when people get free tickets to a Broadway show, they go. You know, and it, it, it's this whole communal thing. You know, here are all these delegates and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's sort of like a theater party. So no wonder nobody threw away an invitation. So I thought, well, let me go down there. Maybe somebody will give me an invitation. So I'm waiting outside. Nobody's giving me an invitation. So I decide maybe I can just, you know, barge my way in and uh, without the invitation, uh, get past a box office man and, and that'll be that. And, um, and so I, I just walked past the uh, guy taking the uh, invitation saying I'm with the band and there's a clamp on my shoulder from behind. I'm spun around and David Merrick is there and says, you are not with the band. You get out of here right now. And I said, well, actually, um, he said, no, actually, get out of here right now. And he pushed me out and pushed me onto the sidewalk. And um, you may notice that uh, to the left of um, of my um, mouth, there's a little scar um, from when he uh, pushed me on the sidewalk. Uh, Josh Ellis, who worked with David Merrick, said, gee, all of us have internal scars from David, but you have an external <laughs> one. You know. So anyway, of course, the Winter Garden does have that other um, exit on 7th Avenue. So I figured, let me go around that way and I'll go in and, uh, you know, because somebody will come out and have a smoke and I'll, I'll walk in. Somebody came out, had a smoke. I walked in, sat third row center, saw the show, afterwards walked up the aisle and there was David Merrick talking to somebody. His back was to me, but I knew it was David Merrick. And I tapped him on the shoulder and he turned around and I said, it stinks. And he went like when Donald Duck goes crazy, you know, when Donald, that's exactly what happened. Of course, David Merrick had the last laugh because that was the biggest hit he ever had running substantially longer, even than Hello, Dolly. But um, that was my night and my experience with David Merrick. I don't think you've ever told that story. No, that's yeah. that okay. amazing. Yeah. I'll take a polygraph test every Are you saying that you, that you hit the sidewalk when he threw you out? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. The, really, um, there's a little indentation you'll see oh. um, now. Now that you know, when you when you see me, if we ever see each other again, um, <laughs> you know, we'll uh, you you can look for it and you'll find it. You know, so um, so that's my David Merrick scar. Well, I have to say, I don't think I've ever been assaulted by a celebrity, so I can't top that. <laughs> oh, we have to uh, change change the name of the show now, because the name of the show is Favorite Moments with Theater Celebrities. <laughs> I don't have to say, your favorite moment, Peter? Most, memor- <laughs> most memorable. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. <laughs> no, I mean, or maybe, yes, I would for the world. I wouldn't trade it for a studio apartment, though. No, really, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's such a great experience, you know, all things told. And I got to see 42nd Street free. So, uh, Tony Janicki adds that there's uh, two Doris Days and two Gene Arthurs. Oh, uh, in fact, in fact, um, my girlfriend, uh, Linda, who's a literary agent, has a client, Doris Day. I don't know if that's who uh, Tony is referring to, but she's, I think, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or something like that in, on the Upper West Side. <laughs> that is wonderful. Well, and then, you know, uh, we've brought up many times the two Paul Rudds. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that would happen just because they were not active at the same time. Same time, time right. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, I saw the first Paul Rudd play Cowboy in Boys in the Band in Boston. Oh. Uh, yeah. There's two uh, relatively famous guys named John Favreau right now. One is right. the Star Wars director, right. and the other one is, uh, he used to be a staffer for Barack Obama, and he now speech runs... Speechwriter, right? Yeah, speechwriter for uh, Barack Obama, and he now, now runs uh, Crooked Media, which is uh, Pod Save America podcasts. Uh, which are left-leaning podcasts that are really, really wonderful podcasts, uh, and they, they they are both pretty well known on Twitter. Twitter, and uh, there's always confusion around when it, when either one of them does anything, the other one gets a lot of uh, Twitter traffic uh, regarding those very various things. So, uh, what else, uh, Michael? How about anybody else from your list? Well, maybe I'll end with a story I've told before, but I I, I think it. It's a a sweet one and kind of like a summation kind of story. I got to interview Hal Prince years ago at his office, which was an amazing experience. And um, we were talking and somehow the subject, I mean, at that point, he had had many, many great hits and also several flops in his career. In fact, and the flops had been more recent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we were talking about how you never know and blah, 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 blah. And I said, uh, well, I said, for example, what would you say if I told you that I thought Rosa was a much better show than Phantom of the Opera? Mm -hmm. Uh, Rosa was a quick flop um, Mm -hmm. uh, based on Madame Rosa, I think it was the title of the source material, with Georgia Brown. but I loved it. Uh, Broadway, Broadway musical, very, very quick flop. And Phantom was already at that point several years into its run, and it was obviously going to be here forever. Uh, so I said, what would you say if I told you that I, I liked Rosa much better than Phantom of the Opera? And he, he just kind of chuckled and he said, well, if that's how you feel, then that's the truth for you. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me ask the two of you a question. Uh, any stories about Hal Prince and David Merrick? 
no. with each other? Uh, yeah. Not, not the, no. uh, aside from the fact that uh, Merrick did ask um, Prince to direct Hello, Dolly. And um, and the famous story that um, I, I dare say every listener has heard is that um, Hal Prince said, gee, it might be a good show, but you got to get rid of that Hello, Dolly number. It's so stupid. It doesn't mean anything, you know, so. Um, but uh, it would have been extraordinarily interesting um, to have um, Hal Prince working for David Merrick. And yeah. I think we would have got a making of No, No, Nanette book out of that experience if that had happened. Mm. Yeah. I ask because uh, Phantom opened at, uh, opened at the Majestic and mm-hmm. sort of displaced 42nd Street. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I wondered if there was any uh, story that happened there. Mm. Um, all I know is that David Merrick uh, decided to start 42nd Street at 8.15 instead of 8 o'clock, figuring that people who wanted to get into Phantom and were waiting mm-hmm. in line, hoping, would say, well, it's too late to see anything else. Let's go across the street. Um, maybe that was successful because, as I say, it was his longest running show. So um, who knows how much that had to do with it. <laughs> so, Peter, last story of the morning? Well, um, I I think that I'd just simply talk about uh, Gwen Verdon. Um, and I mentioned this before, but when I was interviewing her and we were talking all about Can Can and Damn Yankees and New Girl in Town and Redhead and Sweet Charity in Chicago, and I was out of questions. Um, and she did do a play called Children, Children that lasted one night on Broadway. And um, I said, um, so is uh, just grasping at anything. I mean, I, <laughs> there was silence. I had to fill it, you know. So uh, is is doing a play much easier than doing a musical? And the way she looked at me and said, of course, um, you know, was because she really felt I knew my onions, you know, because here I was saying, well, in, with the red light ballet and new girl in town, you know, I mean, and, uh, yeah, and so, to ask such a rudimentary question, because I was just out of questions, um, was just uh, um, Charles Kirsch, the 13 year old boy who um, has his own podcast called Backstage Babble, says he learned very early on that uh, while he did have 40 questions ready for every interview that he did with people, that he soon expanded it to 80 because he didn't want to run out of questions. And uh, he knew something at 13 that I didn't know when I was 40, whatever. So, Well, but for what it's worth, I mean, I could say see some people replying that it's not necessarily easier. I mean, she meant, of course, in terms of physical right exertion right that's exactly what you meant but yeah. you know but there are other ways in which one might say that doing a play is equally difficult sure. as a musical so i i don't for what it's worth i don't think that was a stupid question <laughs> oh let me also add about jerry orbeck because um uh, carnival was down at the new jersey shakespeare festival and the director thought it would be a great idea to have people play the puppets so you had this enormous puppet stage on stage um and four people were playing carrot top and horrible henry and whatever the other ones were um so uh, carnival is is a musical where um it obviously takes place in the carnival and lily becomes entranced with the puppets who um are manipulated by um uh, paul who's played by jerry orbeck in the original and uh, the thing is 
Paul is a very bitter man because he got wounded in the war and, and now he limps and he feels he'll never get a girl, mm-hmm. but he gets it all out. Um, it, all all his, his charm comes out by, uh, through the puppets. So she falls in love with the puppet. She doesn't fall in love with the man and we'll see if she can by the end of the show. But anyway, I wrote that um, having the idea of people playing the puppets wasn't a good idea because part of the charm of the show was hearing Jerry Orbach do all the voices. Right. So my editor um, called me over after the day the review ran and she said, um, she, we just got a call and somebody said that Jerry Orbeck didn't do all the voices. And I said, oh, let me check that when I go home. Oh, and so right. I was walking home and, um, and there on 8th Avenue and 53rd Street was Jerry Orbeck. <laughs> I said, excuse me. Listen, (laughs) and you know, he came over with such a smile and people said, uh, well, you know, he was just so thrilled. You weren't going to ask about law and order that you you were going to ask about his (laughs) Broadway. No, he didn't know that yet. He was smiling as soon as I said, excuse me, (laughs) he came over ready to. And and it wasn't like, you know, there are some people you talk to, you know, they have their hands on their hips and they're looking down the street and they're going, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're that wasn't it at all. He was totally engaged. And he told me he did do all the voices, except when they had to do the harmony and Pierre Olaf, who was also in the cast, did voices as well. And it was really something to go, go back home and say to my editor, listen, I have the answer to the question. That really happened from the horse's mouth. So, um, so it was really quite a wonderful coincidence. And it was the one and only time I saw Jerry Orbeck, but I'm very glad it was that time. I did a Law and Order uh, many, many years ago with Jerry, and we were on a break, and we just—he was just the nicest, giving yeah, person. Everybody says and, that. I've never heard that word against. And we had this big, long discussion about Broadway oh, and and theater and things. I, I, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better experience with oh, Jerry. That's nice. And this this is not my story, but I may have told this. A friend of a friend was working on uh, something with him. I think maybe it was a Law and Order, like at, towards the very end. And uh, and he went up to him during a break and said, "You know, I, I admire you so much uh, from so, from so many things, but my mother." He said, "Really loves you from having seen you on Broadway since, you know, since Carnival and and Promises, Promises." And she just, he he said, "You are her celebrity, and she absolutely loves you more than anyone." And he said, "Let's call her." Ah, <laughs> and they really? called her from the set. He called her from the set. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> Jerry's uh, last credit on IBDB was Forty Second Street. Uh, and while um, we talk about Jerry Orbach as being this kind, gentle soul, he also, he didn't take crap from anybody. Oh, no. no. Uh, I wonder if there was any Jerry Orbach, uh, David Merrick stories. So. <laughs> I do remember this, um, that um, when, I think it was when Promises, Promises happened. Now, David Merrick produced Promises, Promises, but he also produced um, Carnival. And he said, Jerry Orbeck had a child in each of those years. And he says, Jerry Orbeck does not feel secure enough to have a child unless he's in one of my shows, knowing he'll make making uh, a salary for a good long time. I do remember that. And Jerry was the one who had the presence of mind on that incredible night, the opening night of 42nd Street, right after David Merrick came out and announced that Gower Champion had died, mm-hmm. which was uh, news to almost everyone, almost everyone. In, in the theater. Yeah. And it was complete shock. Uh, in the audience and on stage and people just stood there for a few minutes not knowing what to do and it was Jerry who had the presence of mind uh, to say 
to shout bring it in mm-hmm. which bring it which is means mm-hmm. bring the curtain down mm-hmm. uh, and so they did um, so he took charge of that situation all right so that wraps it up for today I have one question for Mr. Felicia oh yeah the other uh, last week or two weeks ago I'm not sure when it was you said that that a flop opened up on your birthday and so I'm looking at the June 20th opening nights, and I can't figure out which one it is. Um, didn't got to go disco open on that night? No? <laughs> it's June 20th. Is that the right, the right day? June 20th is right. Yeah, yeah. But no. Uh, we have opening nights. So IBD, uh, the Bohemian Girl, the Ragged Regiment. <laughs> Bohemian Girl was a big hit. Yeah. Ski, oh, now I feel better. <laughs> ski he? <laughs> ski high? Ski he? Uh, Ziegfeld Follies of 1910, Goat Alley, Hot Chocolates. That sounds like a that, show that, for me. That was, a, that was a hit. Find the Fox from Vienna, Love on Leave, Ice Time, <laughs> Julius Caesar. Ah, um, ah, almost, really? That's a hit. <laughs> I mean, almost crazy. Designed for Living or Regina Specter Live on Broadway. That's it, huh? (laughs) I thought I'd go disco open on my birthday. It's all for the best. Okay. Well, I mean, I'll now think of Julius Caesar forever. Okay, yes, indeed. So before we get on to trivia, I would like to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can go to, you can listen to Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayvideo.com as well as links to some of the things that we've talked about today, including that Julie Andrews, how to listen to a podcast <laughs> link, which is kind of meta and redundant because you're already listening to this. <laughs> but, but maybe you could send it to a friend, but, <laughs> but do listen to it. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Two plays that were playing on Broadway in November 1930, and one that just made it to November in 1958, are the only Broadway attractions out of the thousands that have had a character with this name that many of us say each and every day, maybe even many times a day. What is it? And what are the names of the play? Well, the name is Alexa, which many of us do say quite a bit while talking into our phones. Mm-hmm. And yes, there have only been three characters named Alexa in Broadway history. In the 1930 plays, An Affair of State and the Noble Experiment, and in Patate from 1958. Tony Janicki was the first to get it, followed by Brigadood and Richard Carey. And that was it. Maybe the convoluted ones are just too convoluted. So how about something deceptively simple or simply deceptive? All right. Only one musical could possibly mention these four great musical hits of 1964. What is the musical that names them? And what are the four hits? Deceptively simple or simply deceptive. (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Have a great Thanksgiving. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Come and meet those dancing feet. Taking you to 42nd Street. Hear the beat of dancing feet. It's 
song I love the melody of 42nd Street. 